love your children more or do you love your phone more? And people will always, of course, say their children. And I'll say, well, which do you look at and touch more? Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Aaron Mauer, outside the box thinker, here to teach each and every teacher how to tinker. Living on the edge of chaos, born insane. Listening to coffee chugs like happy for the boring. One of the top teachers in Iowa, word is born. Here to show the world that there's more here than corn. Chaos. Hey everybody, how you doing? This is Coffee Chug, and I'm here with, I feel like I always say this, but this is a remarkable episode. I had the chance to interview Randy Patterson, who published a book, How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use, and this book is awesome. It's a book that challenges your thinking through, basically telling you to keep doing all these strategies that make you miserable. And as you read, you start to realize how many of these strategies we actually or you actually use. And so in this conversation, we get a chance to explore, ask a lot of questions. We've been reading this book as part of the uh, Coffee Chug Mastermind group on Facebook, where we have books and discussions each month on a variety of different things. And so I weave in some of those questions and, and a lot more. And so if you haven't had a chance to read the book, I would suggest you do so. You'll see the link in the show notes. Um, and this podcast will hopefully inspire you to want to check out his work and the other things that he's doing, because we need more people like this in the mental health service field helping all people who are struggling to just get back on their feet and and he's doing some remarkable work so without further ado let me introduce randy and enjoy this episode Coffee Chug, and welcome to another episode on Living of the Edge of Chaos podcast, and I am beyond honored to have the chance to speak with the author, Randy uh, Patterson, from the uh, the book that he has um, written and created. It's been a, a huge thought-provoking book for, for a lot of us in the education world, um, titled How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use, and so... Um, Randy, maybe for those that, that haven't been reading the book and listening in for the first time, um, if you could tell everybody kind of who you are and uh, what you do, that might be a, a great starting point here. Sure. I'm a psychologist in Vancouver, Canada, and um, I run a, a clinic here. Uh, there's about 14, yeah, there are exactly 14 psychologists working for us now. And we do psychotherapy, mostly cognitive behavioral therapy for mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and uh, related concerns, life change, that kind of thing. Um, and I've uh, written uh, several books, and this uh, this book, How to Be Miserable, is the uh, the most recent of those. Excellent. And 
and I think what I what I liked about about this book and whether people have read it or not read it, um, and I'm and I'm curious in terms of kind of how it came to be a little bit before we actually dive into some of these strategies is there seems to be a lot of books um, on the market right now that are either these these magic bullets follow this kind of template guide and you'll you'll be forever happy, or I, I'm just starting to see this other extreme where it's almost just like you know um, expletive to the to the nth degree kind of the complete opposite direction and and your book kind of has this happy medium of a little bit of you know kind of really challenging you in a different way but not being all all, all honky dory and you know life's going to be be wonderful so I, I, well, my question is i'm curious how did you kind of come to to bring this book to fruition like how did you get to this idea of kind of taking this like here's how to be miserable as opposed to you know be be happy forever by doing these things Right. Well, in uh, a number of years ago, I was the coordinator of uh, uh, prevention of rehospitalization program at a local hospital uh, for people who've been hospitalized and then discharged from inpatient care for major depressive disorder. And so, most of our average number of prior hospitalizations was two. And so, these people have been through an awful lot of treatment. And on our idea, or our the concept uh, of this this program was that they would go through this group therapy uh, program uh, and learn a variety of self-care strategies, learn about cognitive behavior therapy. And our aim was to reduce the rate of rehospitalization, which ultimately happened, but that's another story. Uh, we did pretty well with that. But um, in session, in early sessions, I realized these people have really been through the mill. You know, they many of them have had horrible things happen to them. Um, they have had multiple treatments, and if I go in there saying, "Oh, cognitive behavior therapy is so wonderful and magical, and it'll fix you right up," uh, like nobody's business, I, I was just going to get a lot of resistance to that, and and frankly. Uh, I don't like overselling uh, psychotherapeutic strategies. Life is difficult. Uh, difficult emotional states are normal. We expect them. Uh, we're not going to take away everybody's sadness, everybody's anxiety, and so on. But I thought, well, wait a minute. Why don't we do the opposite? Uh, and so this is really quite an old strategy from earlier on in my career. I asked, I asked them, well, what if, for some bizarre reason, you wanted next week to feel worse rather than better. Uh, what would you do? And and I had these uh, these people sort of stare at me for a moment. It's like, well, you you realize that this group is about trying to feel better, not worse. Um, but I said, well, just bear with me. You know, let's try and think about this. And uh, and I and there was one woman at one of the. Um, one of the groups, I can't remember, I think it wasn't one of the first ones. I, I was one of the early ones, but not the first, uh, who just looked at me and said, so far, I have been doing this for free. Um, so, And uh, I had offered them $10 million if they could make themselves depressed a week hence, uh, or more depressed than they already were. Um, and so she thought, okay, good deal. I'll, I'll go for that if, I, if it only has to be one day. But then people would begin coming up with ideas about what they would do. And some of them were silly and some of them were real. Uh, I would stay at home. I would uh, go back to bed. I would cancel uh, all of the social engagements that I have. I would close the curtains. 
Uh, I would eat either nothing or junk food. Uh, and then the other ones, I would uh, uh, eat some, uh, you know, tons of ice cream. I would listen to country music curtain songs. You know, I watched television all day long. And, and people very quickly began laughing, which I thought was very interesting that this group of depressed people, most of whom you cannot get to laugh, were actually laughing at the thought of this somehow relieving exercise in which they tried to imagine how would they feel, what would they do if they wanted to feel worse. And then I was able to ask them, what are you already doing? When you, when you wake up and you already feel depressed, what do you feel like doing and what do you do? And they realized it was many of those same things. And, and so there's, a, there's an element of normality to the emotional state not complete normality, but but moderate normality to uh, feeling down and discouraged, given what we have been doing in the uh, in the months up until the moment when we measure. I love that. Yeah, and I know you just and I think that's what makes the book so compelling is that there is that that sense of of normality, as you say, where I found myself reading, going, "Man, man, I do that. I I'm, I'm doing that right now." And you know, but it's not to a sense where I felt worse. It was okay. So so what is it that that you're gonna do? Um, and so I really I really like the, the the approach that you had, and I know if if we could maybe dive in a little bit into some of these strategies. I know the one that, that st- stood out to me the most when I, when I first did my first read-through was, was Lesson 20. And I know um, we've had a lot of, we being people in, in, in the book group that's been reading this, um, and, and for those that haven't read it, they need to go read it so they can see what we're talking about. Uh, but, but, but Strategy 20 was work endlessly on your self-esteem. And and we've had a lot of dialogue back and forth online and, and through through our phones and things like that about just diving in more about where you were coming from on, on this concept of, of self esteem. And I mean I'm I'm obviously picking one little phrase from the book, but you have in there that you know, self esteem, you know, in other words, doesn't exist. And and we've had a lot of this kind of back and forth. Um some kind of agree with it, some don't agree with it, and it, it seems to kind of go against a lot of the things that we read, especially as educators, as, as we um, are constantly working on trying to help build up the, the quote-unquote self-esteem with students or as parents with their own kids. Um, and so I guess uh, what, what I'm trying to get at is, is how, did, how did this come to be and, and how did you develop this kind of stance um, where you kind of have this, this concept here, um, if, if, we've, if we're interpreting it right, you know, that the self-esteem is kind of this, this created thing. It doesn't really exist in the sense that it's, you know, it's imaginary. As you said, it's kind of like building a, a ladder out of water. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a sense, uh, there is variability in people. When you sit, sit people down in psychotherapy and talk with them, you can tell that some people just approach almost any situation believing that they will fail at it, that it won't work out, and so on. And other people have more of a sense that, you know, things will probably work out, or I'm probably about as bright in the future as I am today, so I'll probably figure it out. And if I can't, well, probably a lot of people couldn't either. But if you really talk to people at different points on this continuum, what you very quickly realize is uh, the cognitive process is completely different from what you think of as self-esteem and people low. 
people high in self-esteem are not doing positive affirmations. You know, they're not walking down the street saying, oh my gosh, everybody supports me. Everybody loves me and the universe is working in my favor and all of this other nonsense that we tell ourselves with positive affirmations. I mean, there are the there is the odd positive affirmation that is actually true. But if you go online, for example, and look at a lot of the affirmations that are out there, if you look at lists of them, and you can Google them and find lists of these things, and say, okay, what is the objective reality of each of these? And you can just use your own life as an example. And say, in my own life, is this actually true? And you realize very quickly, uh, it's not true at all. Many of them are outright lies. Everybody in the world does not love you. Everybody in the world does not support you. And you do not have all of the talents you need in order to do everything you could possibly want. That's simply false and always has been and always will be. But people with good self-esteem are not uh, going about reciting this wonderful self-supportive stuff to themselves. If they're walking down the street, they're thinking about, oh, I'm going to this store. Now, what is it that I need to buy again? Oh, yes, a screwdriver. Okay, so I'm going to go and get uh, a screwdriver at, uh, at this place. The person with low self-esteem is the one actually going through a cognitive process. Mm-hmm. They're the one saying things like, oh, you know, I'll probably uh, buy the wrong thing and it'll be the wrong um application and I won't know how to use it anyway and I'm incompetent and so on and I'll embarrass myself and I'll probably drop my money when I take it out of the wallet and blah blah blah. The people with low self-esteem are actually doing active process. They are devaluing themselves. People with what we think of as good self-esteem aren't actually doing anything. (laughs) And so what I point out in the section is that self-esteem does not actually exist self-loathing exists but by focusing on self-esteem this the the absence of something uh we don't really know what to do right yeah so i don't know if that's a a fair description no yeah it does it it makes complete sense and i i I appreciate you diving into that you know and in there you you talk too about in that same section about um you know that we just need to remove the plug that prevents self-worth from flowing and so, and and I know that every single person is unique and different. So this is kind of a tough question, but like in, in a general sense, I mean, is like I've spent 13 years working at a middle school, um, and I see a lot of kids that just talk so negatively to themselves. Uh, or now I work in a space with, with with educators and helping them try to bring their ideas to life. And there's so much of just resistance in the sense that they don't have this kind of belief that they can do these things. And so, I mean, so. If, if, what are some like maybe like general things so we can kind of get away from you know like removing the plug and not being so focused on on self-loathing that you know to kind of get to this point where you know as you say we're we're doing nothing. Well, with negative thinking or self-loathing, one of the things that we can do is is make it conscious. We can say, okay. Well, I don't need to be telling myself how wonderful I am necessarily. Um, I think one of our ideas behind that is that we're compensating for the negative stuff we're telling ourselves. But we don't have to do that. What we can do is simply ask ourselves, okay, well, if I'm feeling horribly underconfident and um, like a failure or like I'm going to fail in this social situation or academic situation, let's say, then what we can do 
um, is try to become aware of, okay, well, well, how is that true? Um, I'm a terrible person. Okay. Uh, how so? Let's, let's actually write it down. Let's, let's bring it into conscious awareness. And when we begin becoming aware of the negative things we are telling ourselves, one of two things becomes true most often. Either we realize that many of our negative self-thoughts are false, or right, they're just not, not valid at all, or they are valid. We really are inadequate in the ways that we are telling ourselves, but so are 98% of other people, and we're not, not uh, uh, focused on that. Yeah. So I think part of it is awareness, and then part of it is is being able to say, well, okay, so if that's a selective truth uh, or an untruth, what are the things that we can do to uh, tell ourselves what is the truth? Like, let's see if we can actually develop a sense of what is real and uh, do that instead, or tell ourselves that instead, to the point where it gradually becomes a little bit more automatic. Yeah, I like that. That, that, that That makes a lot of sense. And so if we were to bounce into the next lesson that you have in there, it's, uh, or not lesson, but strategy, strategy 21, it's titled Become an Island Into Yourself. Um, you talk in there, and, and, and I really like this piece about this like social diet being composed of various vitamins and, um, you know, and, and you go into and, and talk a little bit about how some of the most essential vitamins, so to speak, are, are missed in, in the online connection because we're so consumed, um, you know, it kind of connects with the other le- strategy in there about, about maximizing our screen time. Um, and so this lacking of this face-to-face interaction, and I guess w- when I first read that, my first thought was, you know, some of my, my closest friends or allies in, in my in my learning network and just you know um i've met online and then with with without the fact of maybe connecting online through social media i, I never would have met them face to face at a conference or a networking event or something like that and so um i was just curious about your thoughts like i understand that we we got to have this face to face and nothing trumps that um but what's your take on on some of that where you know, with, with that social diet, maybe sometimes that, that online piece can actually maybe lead to the face-to-face, which could actually then be that, that benefit that, that I think you're striving for within this strategy. Well, I think that's absolutely right, that you can facilitate face-to-face contact, uh, real person-to-person relationships in you know real time and real life by meeting people online initially and that kind of thing. Uh, so, and to the extent that that happens, wonderful. I think what a lot of the research is showing, however, is that people are um, seeing friends face-to-face and actually socializing directly less often as a result of the onset of social media than, rather than more often. So if, if social media was having that kind of facilitative effect, what we would expect to see is more socialization once social media sort of came online rather than less. And what we seem to be seeing is somewhat less. Now that said, it's, it, it, it's perhaps an exaggeration to say that, that all online social contact is completely, you know, the nutrisweet of, of, of socialization. Um, it, it, it isn't necessarily, there can be good information exchanges and some people find some genuine support. But uh, I think that relatively few people find that it's a, uh, uh, well, to use the nutritional example, uh, a complete diet. Right. Whereas prior to the existence of, of, of 
this kind of thing uh, of uh, Facebook and so on. People weren't experiencing too much of the uh, incompleteness of not having it. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and, I, and and the more I thought about it too, you know, especially uh, when I was going back and rereading it, one of the ideas that kept popping in my head when I read through this the for the second time was, you know, here I am thinking that you know my my online friends or network is just as powerful as in person but then i started to think about like you know do i actually know them as a person or am i more connected with like the the online persona um you know that that we all display whether we do it with best intentions or not and you know so that really got my head spinning about you know how valid is are some of the networks that i have and i think some of them people that i've got on the meet face to face and things like that have, have worked out quite well. But then it's like some of these people, you know, I feel connected to, but, but am I really, or am I connected to the, the image that is being displayed? And I think, you know, like you said, you can't, you can't sugarcoat everything and make this generalization. And I also know that, that the reality is, you know, the online piece can't be a replacement for that human, you know, face to face interaction either. Right. It- Everyone in, in virtually any kind of interaction, face to face or otherwise, um, stage manages a little bit. You know, they might uh, they might not tell everything that's going through their mind, um, and and we can see that in people. We in psychotherapy we often talk about the idea of a false self. You know, I'm presenting this image of myself to the world. It's not exactly complete, you know. Maybe I'm, I'm not as friendly as I look to be, uh, or I have to crank some things up. I'm maybe not as enthusiastic about about something as I make out to be when I'm speaking with uh, an individual, or you know, whatever. Most people have some elements that are stage managed at least a little bit. Are interpersonal persona. That persona is so much easier to stage manage online. And people do it so reflexively, and it's such a norm to do online, that really the the divorce between who you are and who you appear to be appear, seems to be considerably greater. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, there's, there, there, there's a lot there that could really be dug into at a much deeper level. You know, and, and a lot of it, you know, kind of connected easily to me to, to the other strategy you had where it's, you know, you have it labeled as maximize your screen time, which I think is a topic that's that's always in the news and online and, and, and we hear about it from, from the educator level and the parent level, um, you know, about trying to get kids off the screens and outdoors and things like that. But but what I really liked about, about your approach is you, you compared it to smoking, which really kind of opened my eyes to a great deal, both in my, my, my personal use of, of screen time as well as what I use for my kids and, and kind of having that reflection point. Um, and so what has been, you know, maybe maybe talking about that a little bit, and I can't remember the exact years um, that you had in there in terms of our, our screen time that we lose compared to like our, our years of life compared to smoking. But but since you've published this book and, and kind of talked about that, what have been, been some things that, that have come out of conversations about this, this screen time piece? Because I think it's, it's so fascinating, and I think so many people are trying to grapple with, you know, what exactly is this kind of gray area that's that's safe and right and what's the right amount, not a right amount, that kind of thing. Well, recently, and since since I wrote the book, uh, the Nielsen Group has done a survey of American citizens looking at to what ex- uh, how many minutes per day do they spend looking uh, at a telephone 
at a computer or at a television. So looking at those kinds of screens, movie screens where you're actually going out and sitting with other people, maybe going out with friends most often, not included. Okay. But those, those screens that we use on a daily basis, how many hours per day are people actually using these things? And the average for American citizens was 10 hours and 39 minutes. Now, if you add to that eight hours, assuming that people are spending eight hours either in bed or getting ready for bed or what have you, you wind up with 18 hours and 39 minutes, resulting in less than five and a half hours that we might spend in what we might think of as um, reality or real life. I know some people will quibble with that saying, online is real life, you know, my heart is still beating and so on. But, But, you know... I was recently asked to do a talk for a a group of high school students and parents. And uh, one of the questions that people were talking about was why, why do we seem to be having such a, uh, an increase in mental health problems amongst students and and depression amongst students. And I suggested, well, a, that I don't know, although I have some pretty good ideas. uh, But, but one of the thoughts that I have is that their lives are so much shorter. That if you think about what boosts you, what builds you up, what uh, enhances your sense of well-being, your competence, your ability to do things, um, those are things that are mostly uh, happening away from from screens. And people really don't have a 12 to 16 hour day anymore. They've got perhaps a five hour day. And so they really just don't have time to have a life. Mm. Yeah, that's. Yeah, and I think there's, I mean, even just the little nuances in life where, you know, I was, I was waiting and waiting for a, a doctor appointment just yesterday, actually, and I felt myself just sitting even at, at the counter, and I was sitting there probably no longer than, than literally 20 seconds, and I had that urge to, like, check my phone, and I just kept thinking, like, what is wrong with you, Aaron? Like, why, like, what is this, this this glaring surge that you must feel the need to look to see what you've missed in the last two minutes since you've walked out of your car and, and waited for, for, for the, for the person in the office to, uh, you know, finish the paperwork. And it's like, there's, there's such that, 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 that addictive nature that we've built into these devices and the screens that I was like, whatever happened to sitting and, and being bored or just sitting there, you know? And I, that's like, like as much as I, I gripe on my own kids, like I'm just as bad as an adult and, and I find myself working on it, but also I'm modeling the same behaviors that I'm trying to have my kids not have, you know? So it's almost becomes that, that, that evil concept of, you know, do as I say, not as I do, which we know doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. In answer to that question, what is the matter with you? The, there, there's an answer and the answer is nothing at all. Uh, in that, you have a human mind and the telephones uh, and the smartphones were developed specifically for the human mind. And so they're designed to do this in the same way that uh, one-armed bandits are designed to create a, a, a feeling in people that they want to keep gambling in the casino. I mean, it's exactly the same kind of thing. So they're, they're kind of designed to be addictive in that way. And I, I think probably not in a malicious way. Uh, they're designed to be helpful. And do we want to be helped? Yes, of course. Um, but at some point, uh, it begins crowding out the rest of the human life. I think if we were immortal, it wouldn't be a problem at all. 
or if we could expand the number of hours in a day. Yeah. So, so do you have any like ideas and then, you know, cause I look at you, we talked about like, um, you know, if smoking, if you, if you, if you smoke for so many years on average, you know, you're going to lose seven to 10 years of your life. Um, and we know that if you're investing, you know, 10 hours and 39 minutes on, on screen time and you, you compound that by your, your time on earth, I mean, you're probably, you're, you're 15 to 25 years. I don't know the math on top of my head that you're losing, you know, quote unquote off your life. How do we, how do we start to bring that awareness? Cause I feel like, like the smoking campaigns of, you know, cancers in the lung and the black tar and those campaigns I think have made an impact. I think we've seen a, you know, overall a, a reduction in, in smoking, at least from my perception. How do we start to bring that awareness to people? Because I don't think we see it as a loss of life. You know, it's now it's just become, it's just what we do. Yeah. I, I, well, I, I think there's, you know, to some extent where we are still alive and we do enjoy watching some aspects of, of these things and, and, and sometimes, uh, reading the news in, uh, in the doctor's office is something that we would have done anyway. It just would have been a newspaper instead of a telephone. So to some extent, we don't need to overplay this, hmm. but, uh, I'm just going to zip back for a moment though. And you say 15 to 20 years, think about that for a moment. If we assume that what we're talking about is conscious life. So let's say we sleep eight hours a day, then we're talking about 16 hours a day. If we're talking about 10 hours and 39 minutes spent looking at screens, that's about two-thirds of that time. If you would like to live a reasonably healthy, long life to the age of 90, we're not talking about 15 to 20 years of life. We're talking about 60 years of life. <laughs> we're talking about most of them. <laughs> right? Yeah. But yeah. I think I – think, one of the things that I do in, in groups when I'm speaking with large groups, I did this uh, just recently, I, I, I said, I brought out a flash, little flashlight that I have, and I, I said, do you remember Men in Black? Uh, you know, the little flashy thing, and it'll erase some of your memories. Well, this is one of those. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take away some of your memories, but what you can do is you can sequester those, some of your, your favorite memories, you can sequester them off and protect them from my flashy thing. And so what I want you to do is think of one of these memories, not the best one, because that'll take for you too long to think of, but just think of one good memory that you would not want to lose to me. And I, I basically nag people until they all nod and show that they've got a memory that they're thinking of. And then I say, okay, now what I want you to do is raise your hand if during that memory, in that event that you are remembering, you are looking at a telephone, uh, a television, or a computer. And typically in a room of about 200 people, one to two people will raise their hands. And that's interesting. Now, that doesn't mean that the, all of that time we spend looking at computers is wasted, of course. But it's interesting that people's most significant experiences, the important things in their life, tend to be crowded into that non-screen period of time. And so that's one way that I, I try to get this idea of across. I mean, I wouldn't want to be giving up online research. I can't tell you how many hours I spent looking at the, the science citation index in libraries <laughs> when I was going through university. Awful. Uh, you know, or standing at a hot photocopier for hours on end, uh, you know, printing out articles. 
and, and all of that's gone because of the internet and because I have access to these screens. But there comes a point at which, you know, the, um, the benefits are, are uh, getting thinner and thinner and the costs are getting greater and greater if you feel you can't go out with your friends, you don't have time to do do things, you don't have time to spend time with your children. Uh, one of the things that I often do with adults is I'll, I'll, I'll point out, which do you love more? Do you love your children more or do you love your phone more? And people will always, of course, say their children. And I'll say, well, which do you look at and touch more? And uh, the answer, of course, is your phone. If a Martian was to come down and say, what's the most important thing in these people's lives they would al- the martian would almost certainly say uh clearly it's their uh it's their telephone that's yeah. more important than anything that's good i i like that i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to use that that's a that's a good i like that that, that, one, uh, that <laughs> one that one sticks well hey i want to be cognizant of your time here and you've given us a ton of of thoughts to think about and process and you know, even just going back and kind of looking to the book in a, in, in a different lens. But I want to make sure, you know, are there, are there any strategies or ideas that, I mean, 30 minutes is a whole lot of time, but um, that, we, that we didn't touch upon that you want to make sure you, you bring out to, to everyone listening? Well, one of the things that I'm, I'm quite concerned about and that I touch on a little bit in the book, uh, but there's, you know, a lot more to be done in that area, is that I think that that one of the culprits for, you know, an increased rate in self-perceived mental disorder and mental illness in our society is the efforts of the mental health system, uh, of which I am a part. Um, We have successfully convinced people that if they are anxious, if they are shy, if they are discouraged, if they feel pain at bereavement, that they have a mental disorder. And what we've what we've done is we've taken the idea of uncomfortable emotional states or difficulty adapting to unpleasant circumstance, and we've turned that into uh, a disease concept. And, and I think that's really useful if that leads us to do something about it, but it unfortunately it doesn't. And it, it reduces the kind of coping that we, uh, that we actually can do, which is stop thinking of ourselves as diseased and think of ourselves as, well, what, uh, what actually needs to be done in this situation? Where is the control that I have over, over this? There really is mental illness. There really is, uh, speaking for educators, attention deficit disorder. Uh, there really is bipolar disorder. There really is schizophrenia. These are things um, but a huge number of people being diagnosed with these these problems who actually do not and never have met diagnostic criteria for them. And they begin thinking of themselves as other, as defective, as mentally disordered in some way. And I think that that is hugely damaging for a lot of people. And I think one of the things we need to embrace is something that we don't really want to in our culture. And that is that life is difficult, that uncomfortable emotions are there for a reason, that you will experience them, that bereavement does hurt, that discouragement is normal, that despair is normal, that anxiety is predictable and normal and often tells you that you're doing the right thing because you're doing something you haven't done before. Um, And that, uh, you know, a short attention span often means that we've been training ourselves in having a short attention span and maybe we could use some 
uh, practice, possibly meditation, possibly something else to try practicing, uh, lengthening our attention span. So, so one of the, the things that's in the latter part of the book is this idea that the pursuit of perfect, perfect mental health is actually potentially taking us in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah, and I liked it. And I did see, especially in the education system, as they continue to cut services and funding to to help the mental health service, you know, it, it, it forces the, the mental health operations in a corner where they have to make these kind of black and white decisions that it's, it's, it's this or that and there's nothing in between. And, you know, and, and we continue to see more and more families and kids and parents, just, just community. It's not even about just the kids that, that just need some structure and education in terms of the, the mental side of things, you know, let alone all the pressures that, that we face with life in general, or in the case of education standards and standards, of te- you know, standards, standardized testing and all these other things. There's this whole other realm that we just need, you know, it, it all kind of comes in is this, this area where we have to like, work through all the pieces collectively and and we continue to see as those things get cut more and more and more it just it doesn't help the cause any you know and and that that's been a, a huge struggle yeah. that i know that we've seen as in, in the education field the last couple of years as things continue to get cut back further and further and further and it's like what do you do for these people that just need a little help you know that we can't provide in the classroom in, in, in a 45 minute period because we've got a b and c to cover you know it's so much easier to diagnose them as disordered uh, rather than as having a personality uh, or being, you know, having a normal Remish personality. I often think of, of uh, pers- the field of psych- personality psychology as, as the area of academia that was eaten by psychopathology. More and more we see individual differences as, as pathology rather than as normal human variability that we're that we're kind of supposed to have. Uh, and to the extent that we're able to branch out and, and see ourselves as being a diverse species um, and embrace some of that, uh, we can mm, perhaps counteract some of this, some of this uh, homogenization that we're trying to do by diagnosing uh, outliers as necessarily pathological. Yeah, that's, that's that's so there's so much truth in there and i think there's right there becomes the challenge for our our society to kind of rethink about how we how we treat and diagnose and and, and label everyone across the board um but you know on that note i want to be i want to be cognizant of your time i i can't thank you enough for for taking time to uh speak with me and and for everyone listening in um and uh, if you haven't read the book, How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use, you need to check it. There'll be links in the, in the show notes for you to check out because we've talked, touched on just a few of the strategies, and, and all of them do provide a ton of food for thought for our own lives and obviously the, the, the lives of everyone around us. Um, but but if, if people want, want to reach out and, and find more about you and, and connect, where, where can they go? Well, they can go to my website, randypatterson.com, and Patterson is with just one T. Um, I also have a variety of online courses at psychologysalon.teachable.com. And uh, I have a blog that isn't hugely active these days. I'm a little uh, uh, scattered in my attention myself. Uh, But that's at uh, psychologysalon.com without the teachable in the middle. 
so those are some resources. Also, if they just Google my name, uh, I've appeared on a variety of other podcasts as well. And uh, and then there's a, a YouTube video that was recently based on, on the book by CGP Gray. And if one just Googles on that, you'll track it down with a little seven-minute video. Awesome. We'll make sure we get all those links and into the show notes of people to check out. And, and once again, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been a, a really thought provoking, powerful uh, episode. And, and I, I appreciate you carving some time out of your, your busy schedule to talk with us. Well, great. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Hey everybody, if you're still listening to this podcast, that means that you've made it to the end and I cannot thank you enough. And so I'm asking you, I'm begging you, if you could see me right now, I'm in the nerd cave with my hands crossed, I'm on my knees. Please, please, please take three minutes and give me a review and rating on iTunes so his message and more of these ideas can get spread throughout the community and this podcast and get some notice so we can bring in other awesome people just like Randy to challenge our thinking, reward us with some, some nutrients for our own brain to make our lives better. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I look forward to your comments, questions, and ideas that you had. Leave a comments in the blog post or wherever it is that you come across this. Until the next episode, stay awesome.